A long, long time ago, there was no big river. A giant frog drank up all the ponds and streams and forbade the people and animals' use of the water. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. When their spirit chief came, he saw how sickly his people seemed. I will give you water, the chief told them. Great radio is everywhere, but you can't be, which is why we collect and curate the best radio available worldwide. On the air, the internet, podcasts, we go wherever the winding river of life takes us to bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. So the spirit chief took an axe and cut down a large yellow birch tree so that when it fell down, the tree killed the monster frog. Rivers feed us in all ways, literal and figurative. Cities crop up around them and poets wax ecstatic about them. They loom large in everything from architecture and history to mythology and warfare. That is how the big river came to exist. The water flowed from the frog and all the branches of the yellow birch tree became rivers and emptied into the big river. Today on ReSound, we wind our way down the Green, the Ganges, and the Chicago rivers for solace, spiritual healing, and of course, total domination. Stay tuned. Chicago, the city of big shoulders, prides itself on getting things done, even if it means moving a mountain or reversing a river. In the late 19th century, the Chicago River was a stinking mess, and it was flowing right into our Great Lake, polluting the city's drinking water. So the industrious engineers, emboldened by the Industrial Revolution, decided that this was a problem whose solution was simple, though far from easy. Here's Roman Mars and Dan Weissman to explain just how they did it. I fell in love with architecture on the Chicago River. You can endlessly argue about which city has the greatest architecture, but one thing that puts Chicago near the top for me is that the Chicago River provides a beautiful vantage point to take in all the marvelous skyscrapers. Rather than being crammed in on the sidewalk between looming towers, trying and probably failing to take it all in, the river pushes the buildings apart and gives you the opportunity to coast by on the roof of a ferry with glass, steel, and concrete wonders presented in their full glory everywhere you turn. But probably the city's biggest design achievement isn't a building at all. It's that river itself, a waterway disguised as a remnant of the natural landscape. But it really isn't. It's hard to tell when you see the river, but it's going the wrong way. It should flow into Lake Michigan, but instead, fresh water from Lake Michigan flows backwards into the city. The Chicago River is, in a large part, a carefully designed extension of the city's sewer system. Even calling it a river may be off base. It's not really a river. In Chicago, it's really the Chicago Canal. There's not an inch, I don't think, of the Chicago River that is natural in Chicago. That's Richard Cahan. He's a journalist and historian in Chicago. And in 2012, he co-wrote and published a book called The Lost Panoramas, When Chicago Changed Its River and the Land Beyond. And it's filled with these gorgeous pictures from before and mostly after one of the biggest urban design projects ever the reversal, and the complete transformation of the Chicago River. And that is Dan Weissman, a journalist, lover of triangular buildings, and a lifelong, diehard Chicagoan. 
And Reversing the River was actually the third in the series of epic design projects spanning almost 50 years. Three projects that amounted to 19th century engineers just taking it to the laws of nature with a kind of moxie that just seems to be folded into the DNA of 19th century engineers. And with just the first two, we're talking about two decades of massive, ridiculous achievements. Stuff that changed people's ideas of how far you could go to make a city work. And those two have been so obscured by time that the dude who did them, and yeah, it was basically one guy who proposed and executed not one, but two of these incredible projects. He's basically unknown today. Ellis Chesbro. If you've never heard of Ellis Chesbro, you're not alone. In fact, as I record this, he doesn't even have a Wikipedia entry. But you can bet Richard Cahan knows who he is. So he was a star, and there is his house is just north of downtown, and there's a little plaque in front of the house. I once parked my car in front of it, and it says House of Ellis Chesbro, and I'm sure I'm the only person that ever was very excited about seeing it. Oh, but back in the 1800s, Chesbro was the man, and no one has ever worked harder to save Chicago from its own poop. Poop. The thing that has brought cities to their knees for millennia. Now here's the setup. It's 1854. The city of Chicago had been growing like crazy for a couple of decades, out of nothing. Huge boomtown, more than doubling its population every few years, and then wham! Cholera epidemic. Wiped out 6% of the city. 6%. That summer, one account had cholera killing 60 people a day in a town of 70,000. One observer put it this way. The death cart was constantly in the street. And not to be gross, but cholera, it is a super nasty way to go. It's sudden, painful, and, well, gross. Vomiting, diarrhea, horrible cramps. You're dead in less than a day, but it is a really, really unpleasant day. So people were freaking out. Enter Chesbro, who made a name with work he'd done in Boston. What you people need, he told Chicago, is a sewer system, which was actually a newish idea at the time in the U.S., No other city here had one. Sewards, yes. Systems, not so much. And Chicago didn't seem like the town you'd pick to go first. Not if you thought topography meant anything. I mean, Chicago was built on a swamp. Street level, water level, pretty much the same thing. So you put sewers under the street, there's no way for the uh, material in them to, you know, run downhill into anything. So here it comes, round one. The first of these three projects that proved Chicago was ready to try anything. Chesbro said, okay, let's jack street level up 10 feet. It was a time when engineers were really seen as the saviors. And so when he said, first off, that we're going to build a sewer system, and he said, we're going to raise Chicago up 10 feet so that we can put in sewers, Everyone in Chicago says, great, great idea, let's do it. Yeah, and there was a reason they went for it. People were making tons of money. Chicago's location was perfect, connecting the west to the east through railroads in the Great Lakes. And that's why the city was growing so fast to start with. Actually, they didn't jack up the streets themselves. They just piled dirt on top of the old streets to make them higher. And some of that dirt came from the river bottom, which they had dredged to make room for all of the stuff that they were about to dump in there. But they did jack up the buildings. Literally, they put the buildings on jack screws, a lot of jack screws, and started cranking. There's this great picture from 1857. It shows a massive hotel, big as a city block, at least three or four stories tall, with dozens and dozens of guys cranking away in perfect sync. Ready, men? Turn! You can also see hotel guests in top hats standing on the balconies a couple flights up. They're looking out, watching their view get better and better a quarter inch at a time. And this kind of thing happened over and over again, with businesses staying open while they were getting cranked up, just for kicks. Another fancy hotel had 1,200 guys cranking away all at once. Meanwhile, 
Apparently, there were teams of masons laying bricks for a new foundation at top speed, literally working around the guys with the jack screws. There's another great picture of a huge downtown block of stores and offices getting hoisted up. All 35,000 tons of it. Jacking up the streets and buildings took like 20 years to finish. But by that time, project number two was already done. Because it didn't take too long after the sewers went in for Chicago to realize that there was a big question that they hadn't given enough thought to on the first go-round. Where did the sewers take all this output? Into the river. And where did the river go? Into the lake. And where was the drinking water coming from? Oops. So, okay, said Chesbro, how about this? We'll build water intakes two miles out from shore, way past where the river dumps our muck into the lake. And that'll mean digging the biggest, deepest, longest tunnel ever up to this point. What do you think? They all said fine, and they did it, and it was amazing. Again, the city is growing, people are making money, and everybody agrees they'll do whatever it takes to keep this thing rolling. So it's on round two, digging the tunnels. In 1864, Chesbro's guys start digging the tunnel out from the city, 60 feet down from street level. A year after that, they install a giant structure two miles out in the lake. They call them cribs. And start digging a tunnel in from under that, back towards shore. The work went on around the clock from both sides. One crew dug by hand for 16 hours a day. Then a crew of bricklayers took the graveyard shift, shoring up the area that had just been dug out. In November 1865, the two sets of crews met in the middle, just about dead on, centered. Needless to say, this is before GPS. You know, this is just all by sight. Everybody agreed. Chesbrough was a genius and a half. Except they hadn't really solved the problem. The city was still growing like crazy. Maybe 200,000 people by 1865. And they were dumping more of their business into the river than ever. Which stank. And before the water from the new intakes even started flowing, the Union stockyards opened on the river's south branch and up the ante. We're talking 320 acres of slaughterhouses and meatpacking plants, all of them dumping whatever they couldn't use, and just imagine what that would be into the river. Well, they estimated the stockyards were the equivalent of a million people's discharges. And there weren't even a million people in the city then. Yeah, that's true. That bit of the South Fork still goes by the name it got then, Bubbly Creek. All the discarded animal stuff would rot at the bottom of the river and eventually give off methane, which would bubble up to the surface and burst. Also, sometimes it caught fire. And sometimes the sewage got swept more than two miles out and found the water intakes. Later, they'd dig these even further out. There's one called the Four Mile Crib. And meanwhile, the city kept growing. By 1880, we're talking half a million people and producing more excrement. The stockyards grew too. A lot. One engineer would say... Chicago produces more filth per capita than any other city. And now typhoid was getting to be a problem. So Chicago started pushing for a new state law to help undertake the biggest, baddest, craziest idea ever. They decided to dig a gigantic new canal that would reverse the river entirely. Reversing the river would bring in fresh water from the lake and keep Chicago's muck from polluting the drinking water pulled from that same lake and flush all the sewage down to the Illinois River, which would then take it out to the Mississippi. It took a few years to get the new law approved. The town of Joliet saw a river of crap coming its way and tried to nix it. And then it took a few more years to get plans laid out and contracts issued. And then it was shovel day, September 3rd, 1892. More than a thousand people came out to watch. An official took one cut with a nickel-plated shovel, and then an engineer detonated two massive loads of dynamite. Dynamite was their preferred weapon. (laughs) Against the environment. And it was on round three in the epic struggle against Chicago's own excreta. 
Reversing the river. 28 miles of canal. Price tag, 31 million and change. In today's money, almost $23 billion. As many as 8,700 guys working at a time, with work going on year-round. Tons and tons of dynamite. You could hear the blasts downtown when the wind was right. And enormous machines, some invented special for the project, including a 640-foot-wide monster conveyor, which broke after less than a year, but still. During the 1893 World's Fair, tourists by the thousands day-tripped out to the construction zone. They would take boats and trains out to the site to see the work. And people were coming to Chicago, and they were like, you got to see this. You know, this town is amazing, and they'll do anything to survive. Even after the fair closed, train companies ran morning specials so local sightseers could check out the big machines and those ever-popular dynamite blasts. This was an amazing project. Uh, You know, so many people know about the Panama Canal, but it was really in building this canal that they figured out everything engineering-wise and the equipment, and and a lot of the, the engineers went to Panama. And then, very late in the game, St. Louis got pissed. We're talking 1899. All the major digging has been done for years. And the fine-tuning stuff is getting wrapped up. All the construction of bridges, some extra digging in the rivers downstream that are going to carry Chicago's water toward the Mississippi and whatnot. And that stuff is very, very close to finished. And this is when St. Louis figures out that all that water carrying who knows what is headed down the Mississippi, upriver of St. Louis, which depends on the river for its drinking water and for brewing Budweiser beer. The city authorizes its attorney to prepare a lawsuit asking the U.S. Supreme Court for an injunction that would stop the Sanitary District of Chicago from opening up the dams and letting that water go. Thing is, it takes a while to get a lawsuit ready. A few months, say. And Chicago starts humping it to get the dams ready to open before St. Louis can get an injunction. So, New Year's Day, 1900. The Sanitary District trustees decide the major work is done. The next day, January 2, they head out to a spot on the city's southwest side where there's this one little temporary dam holding back the river from this massive 28-mile canal that's waiting for all that water. The trustees arrive at dawn. One of them brings shovels. Most of these projects have these beautiful gold shovels, but one of the trustees just stopped at a hardware store and bought these kind of tinny old, you know, work shovels. It's like stopping at Home Depot. Hey, it's five in the morning. I had an awful time getting these shovels this time of day, he says, and he lays them out. There's a couple of reporters there taking notes. And the trustees dig in. At least they try to. First off, you should note that it was in January in Chicago. So, you know, you don't shovel anything by hand. Uh, the, 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 the ground was absolutely frozen and they were going absolutely nowhere. So they bring in a dredge, which also goes nowhere. So they go get some dynamite. Good old dynamite. Which is a dud. It doesn't look very promising. There was a lot of profanity. Number one, the trustees couldn't shovel it out, and then the dynamite's not working, and then the shovels aren't working. And, and you know, this was like an insult to the kind of masculinity that I can't, we can't even, you know, open this thing up. A couple hours later, it's like 10 in the morning now, and maybe 100 people have gathered, and the dredge gets to where it can just get one good scoop, and it grabs it. Yeah, baby. A few more, and a few more, and bam! Everyone's shouting, it is open, it is open! Water starts dropping into the canal, 24 feet straight down, and away it goes. It is the Niagara of Chicago, one of the trustees says. Almost there. But there's still one last dam to open a bit down the river, which needed the governor's okay. It's a gate that's already been made, so it's just a matter of turning the wheels that control the gate. And once the gate was open, the water could not be stopped all the way down to New Orleans. 
Meanwhile, St. Louis is still gearing up its lawsuit. They were always worried about St. Louis actually filing a lawsuit that would stop, that would enjoin them from actually opening the floodgates. And to this day, I can't figure out why St. Louis didn't do that. Or why they were so slow about it. Chicago still had to jam a few last pieces into place to get the governor's okay. It took two weeks. St. Louis could have filed any day. And then, January 17th, the trustees took one more early morning trek to lower the dam. They turned the crank, posed for a picture in their fancy coats and top hats, then beat it back to Chicago for a big lunch. While they were eating, they got word that St. Louis had indeed filed for an injunction that day. Too late. They brought a knife to a gunfight. No, they brought a little piece of paper to a torrent of fight. Late, I might add. They waited until just after the floodgates were open. I can't understand that legal philosophy. The story made the New York Times with the headline, The Water in the Chicago River Now Resembles Liquid. St. Louis pushed their case to the U.S. Supreme Court. Chief Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes noted that it is a question of the first magnitude whether the destiny of the great rivers is to be the sewers of the cities along their banks. Which is an important philosophical question, but to paraphrase the way Justice Holmes finished that opinion, whatever, man. Settling a question that big, it wasn't really the court's job, especially since Missouri allowed St. Louis and other towns to dump sewage into the Mississippi and send it straight to Memphis. So in a very real sense, there was no stopping it. The canal and river reversal was later called a civil engineering monument of the millennium. It was a functional monument to our dominion over the natural world. Or so we thought. Fast forward a hundred years to right about now. And the forces of nature are looking for another go-around. There have been some big efforts to clean up the river itself in the last few decades. And by 2015, the treated sewage is actually supposed to get disinfected. And when Rich Cahan and I visited Bubbly Creek looking for bubbles, we may have seen signs of life there instead. I see bubbles. Uh, look, yeah, look. I, too. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a fish, isn't it? See that right down there? I definitely think it's some kind of living thing right there. Yes, yes, like a guppy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, that was a bubble. <laughs> no, those are bubbles right there. Look at them. But now we're living in a time when the big 19th century interventions in nature seem poised to boomerang back at us. Water levels in Lake Michigan have fallen, at least for now, to the point where gravity may stop pulling lake water into the river, potentially re-reversing the river if there weren't, you know, engineering interventions. In terms of washing away Chicago's waste, it's mostly a symbolic issue. There are other ways to keep the water and treated sewage flowing away towards the Mississippi. But falling lake levels, I mean, this is most of the fresh water in North America. And a lot of people link this kind of falling lake levels to climate change and the whole catalog of horrors that comes with it. And it all seems like kind of a karmic payback for exactly the kinds of projects that reversing the Chicago River stood for. The idea that we can just do whatever we want to the planet and get away with it. And I think that's a completely valid lesson you could take from this. That the inherent hubris involved in reversing a river or manipulating the environment to suit our needs is exactly what is wrong with us as stewards of this planet. But taking another view, you could also see this as a lesson in the lengths we will go to survive. If we harness that 19th century moxie, the kind of moxie that makes you think that you could and should reverse a river, and we add to that the knowledge we've gained since then, we could guide our best and brightest to engineer the impossible no matter what it takes, and we would take day trips 
out to the far edge and cheer them on as they save us from getting buried in our own shit. Or we could produce less shit. That'd be okay too. Reversal of Fortune was produced by Dan Weissman, Roman Mars, and Sam Greenspan for 99% Invisible, a podcast about design. If there's one thing that should never be invisible, it's your feedback. Write it, tweet it, shout it, post it. Questions, comments, rants, and raves can be sent to resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. At our website, you can peruse a vast audio library of thousands of stories from around the world that we've carefully culled and curated over the last 15 years. No library card, no late fees, no shushing. Just a portal to a fantastic world of sound and story. Coming up after the break, Raging River Rapids and a search for solace. Stay with us. Welcome back to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today, stories about rivers, which have an endlessly redemptive appeal. Former NPR host Alex Chadwick, known for his lyrical and contemplative writing, suffered a devastating personal blow in 2010. His friend Tim was also at a critical juncture. So together, they set off down the churning Green River in Colorado to see if their end point, miles from their start, would find them in new terrain. Here's Alex. Prison. Prison. Tim DeChristopher is certain that he's going to have to go. He doesn't know for how long. It depends on the judge and on what Tim does. I'm in a kind of prison already. I don't know my sentence either. My wife died last summer. I tried to save her for many months and failed. I stopped working. I've been lost. Maybe a river is right for Tim and me, because it goes one place. And if you're lost, that's good. Hey, kids. On a clear day in early May, we're at a place called Mineral Bottom on the Green River in eastern Utah. We've been loading rubberized boats, passing everything by a sign you could read from across the river. Warning, high water, it says. Cataract Canyon is considered a Class 5 run, marked by large, unavoidable waves and holes. It'll take us a week to get there, but that's where we're headed, Cataract Canyon. I've never been there, but maybe the sign has. It's dangerous and represents a significant risk, the sign says, even for experienced boaters. Hmm, experience, none. We have lots of time to study the sign because eight of us are going and Bob and Pam are late. With the boats ready, there's nothing much to do. 
One of the guides, Laurel, breaks the seal on a large bottle of Fleischmann's gin, takes a swallow, hands it to another guide, Suzette, and then the two of them find a place on the riverbank to nap. It's 11 o'clock in the morning. Okay. So the snowmelt is started, and the, every day the river's going to rise until it's exhausted. A day later, past our first campsite, the trip leader, my friend John Weisheide, is explaining river dynamics to the steady rhythm of his orchestra. And uh, they're saying this year will be a high year. Yeah, very high. It's a big snow year. It might be safer to wait for low water. Of course, we can't now. Once you start, there's no way off the river but down it. By the time we get to the uh, infamous big drops at Cataract Canyon, it'll be 30,000. Rapids change according to a river's flow rate, cubic feet per second, the volume of water passing a fixed point in one tick. Cataract Canyon is notorious at a normal 6,000 CFS. The Green River we're on now is already three times that, and when we reach the confluence with the Colorado River, we'll double again. And then we hit the cataracts. You know, and there was a time in my younger days when that, I was nervous, I was scared, I'd lose my lunch, and, but I've done it so many times, and I've, I've done all the failures that can be done. So I'm not worried at all. I think we'll do fine. We're going in flood season because of Tim. He could be in prison by August. Probably for him, another good thing about the river is no phones, no internet, which means no real chance to make any more legal trouble. He's already got enough of that. I'm expecting around two or three years, but uh, it's hard to say. During the trial, the judge had sharply limited his defense. This is not about climate change, the judge said, and he didn't allow the jury to hear the mine was a lesser evil argument that Tim wanted to make. The sentence could be 10 years. It's up to that same judge. He has a history of being hard on political activists, uh, but there's so many factors that go into sentencing. Uh, and, and a lot of those are on my side, like the fact that I have no criminal record and that I'm white and that I've been honest and cooperative with the whole legal process. The trial lasted four days, and then about five hours of deliberations. Absent the why of his crime, there was little doubt about the what. He was guilty. Now, he's a double felon, someone who should be very careful about any factors that might occur before he gets sentenced. But the ones that are not on my side seem to be strongly against me, like the fact that I've spent the last two and a half years encouraging other people to engage in civil disobedience. He's been about as subtle as that warning sign. At an alt-energy rally two weeks earlier in Washington, people got arrested at an anti-carbon sit-in at the Department of Interior. Tim was not among them. That would have been too stupid. But he did make speeches, and he led the march to the Department of Interior and held the door open for the others who went in. His lawyers frown. And the fact that I have no remorse at all for my actions. Courts look for remorse. Yeah. I don't have it. Green River days settle in unhurried patterns. Sleep past dawn, break camp, ravens outraged that we leave nothing, 
load the boats, the food, the gear, the gin, and row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. The river cuts deep through canyon walls. They rise hundreds of feet, mesas, arches, huge rock formations delicately balanced on slender columns and bands of color, ochre, yellows, cream, ash. It's like passing through an eerie, majestic monument to geologic time. Late afternoons we stop, unload the boats again, start on dinner. No one bothers with a tent. We scatter sleeping mats along a ledge or a broad sandbar and make a fire and talk. I lost hope in a lot of things. Tim's a lot more at ease here than he was during the trial. I can see that. He's smiling. He's spending time with Laurel. But he's not naturally a lighthearted man. And he means it about losing hope. Um, I lost hope in, in having any sort of normal future. Anything that my parents would define as, as a normal future of you know a career and retirement and a family and all that stuff. I realized that that wasn't realistic for my generation anymore. When he says no more normal, he thinks climate change means something almost apocalyptic. Big rising seas, coastal floods, drought, disease, famine. And it all leads to the collapse of order and catastrophic human loss all within a few decades. And it's already too late to stop. That's what he thinks. And I started to accept that, that in a lot of ways I have nothing to lose by fighting back because I've already grieved the loss of, of everything that can be taken away from me. Everything. Carolyn loved being outside. She loved the rivers, the west, the way the night sky here makes star galleries. We were coming someday. We were coming to the river, and she wouldn't be scared. She was afraid of her end sometimes, but she almost never showed it. She didn't want to talk about it. I'm on this journey because of her. John Weisheit knows what I lost, and he thinks the river is transformative, healing maybe. I'm carrying a recorder and making notes and talking with Tim out of habit, or maybe to learn if I still can. At the, at the height of the Somali pirate thing a couple of years ago, one of the pirate leaders released this statement to the Western world where he said, you have no idea what life in Somalia is like. You can't possibly understand how desperate our situation is. And he said, your power comes from your ability to take things away from people, and therefore you can't stop us because you have nothing left to take away. And it was a statement that really struck me as, as really profound. Utah was home to the writer Edward Abbey, whose novel The Monkey Wrench Gang celebrated eco-gorillas. What Tim did at that auction, those fake bids, gave him a kind of Abbey-esque quality. Among the two earnest greens were their scientific certainty and political bewilderment. They lack a charismatic leader. Probably even they know that. And maybe that's what Tim is becoming, a man willing to risk all for what he believes. But he is young, and his alarming views would scare many. The first serious talk we had, he said he thought he was a revolutionary. I wonder if the people who you're targeting might not really enjoy hearing you say this. They'll say, look, this guy is a radical, a self-described radical, and he's on the side of the Somali pirates, for God's sakes. That's, if you want to be on that side, that's who you're standing with. 
From what I've seen, my opponents really don't like people to hear what I have to say. They do like to, you know, try to put words into my mouth and, you know, say, oh, he mentioned the Somali pirates and saw something profound in what they were saying, so therefore he's on their side. But they've, they've actually really avoided spreading anything that I say. I think they know that, that when people uh, see someone like me as a person and start to actually, uh, you know, consider the things that I'm saying, it's hard to, to vilify someone like that. This is what's disturbing. Tim DeChristopher believes civilized order will collapse from stresses brought on by climate change. It'll be chaos. The kinds of conditions under which humans have a history of oppression and violence. He's afraid of what will become. That's why he declares himself a revolutionary. And he is angry, not really at the oil companies. He's angry with us, me, my reckless generation. And in my experience, when I've had the opportunity to sit down with people at what a lot of people consider to be the other end of the political spectrum, people that are self-described Tea Partiers, we, we find a lot of common ground. Some of our, our priorities for radically shifting power are the same. And I think that's dangerous to those in power. When the people on the bottom start to see that the people they're told to hate aren't, aren't really their enemy. Day six. We reached the confluence with the Colorado yesterday. The water's big and fast. I was 20 feet from it last night, sleeping on a broad sandbar. Sometime after midnight, the river splashed me awake. It had eaten most of the soft bank where I lay. It's just light now, a little after six. We ran out of gin two days ago. Here comes an experienced river guide. Suzette Weisheit. Suzette, how does the river look today? Fantastic. I mean, we're up, the river's cooking along. It surprised us all by coming up a little bit further than we thought it would and kind of encroached on our camp. But, uh, you know, more is better. More is better. Are the river people crazy? I can't tell anymore. I love it. But we are going down Cataract Canyon today. The flow is about 35,000, six times normal. Small driftwood trees rush by and parts of bigger ones. We air pump the boats inflated tight. The one John Weisheit rows is 17 feet long with a beam less than eight feet. Two metal cross members form rigid bench seats. John sits in the middle one, braced against lashed down gear bags. He's got a pair of long oars. I've seen it this high a lot, and I know what's down here and what to expect, and so it really doesn't terrify me anymore. I'm in front, holding on just behind the fat lip of the bow. The river is less than 100 yards wide. In places, it looks bad all the way across. The first big rapid. John shoves an oar and the boat turns toward the center of a narrowing V where the current funnels into an opening. Then we're sliding down in a strange blend of speed and slow motion. The water's fast, but in the boat, each moment stretches like a dream, as though we're falling very slowly. There's always enough time to save ourselves. There's these big rocks in uh, Cataract Canyon, and the water goes over them 
and they look like waves, but on the other side there are these awesome holes that boats fall into and get tossed around and lurched and sometimes they flip. Bam! 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 Through a series of waves, water cascading over us. And we pull to the riverbank, tie off the three boats, scramble ahead on rock debris, and stand at a high point looking at the ugly place we're about to go. Well, that's rapid number 15. Some people call it capsize. Some people call it hell to pay. <laughs> a piece of driftwood slides down river and the current carries it perfectly through the rapid. But then comes a log about as big as a person. It catches the channel wrong, hits a rock, rolls under, and disappears. How do you think we should ride? Hey, diddle diddle. Except just, I what mean. What does that mean? Right down the middle. <laughs> But, um, you know, there's a huge mama hole on the left side. So just don't get there. Watching the river with them, I start to see the patterns. They're fast and shifting, but they are there, at least in flashes. Stay clear and calm. See the way. It's still dangerous, but it's less scary and more interesting. When a government, any government, confronts a political dissident, isn't this the most basic question? Is he more dangerous in prison or out? I think I can be dangerous to them in either place. From studying American social movements, Tim concludes nonviolent civil disobedience is the best tool for change. This is not a good time for him to be testing any more limits, but it's like the river. You're caught in the currents looking for patterns. There is certainly a power in an activist going to jail. I think it undermines the moral legitimacy of the current government if, in order to continue what they're doing, they have to put principled, honest people in jail. But, you know, I'll also continue organizing if they don't lock me up. So I think it's a no-win for them. That's why it's a powerful thing if we're willing to actually make those sacrifices. A huge, dim mass ahead to the left, blurry under a layer of fast water. We catch the center current down a steep drop, and behind the boulder, there's a hole like the gateway to another dimension. It's 20 feet across, the surface dirty white, hardly moving beyond a tremble, and the stillness is frightening. It's close enough to spit it. The boat hesitates and pushes by. That's the button hook, John says, and he's looking downstream at the next rapid coming on. In prison, Tim will begin writing a book in the form of a series of letters to his father. During his Salt Lake trial, his mother and sister came over from Denver for support. His father, along with the energy industry, did not. When he talks to you about who you are, what you've done, what your beliefs are, do you understand him? Um, I think I do. I think he he comes from a, a genuine belief that we have a system that works, and it has for him. You know, he came from a poor family and worked hard and studied hard and became an engineer and, you know, moved up through the ranks and became secure and, uh, and very comfortable. Uh, I guess I kind of view my father as a prototypical, comfortable liberal in America. 
And I feel like that's the audience that I'm most drawn to addressing. And so I think, you know, a book is a series of letters to him, you know, without the kind of emotional directness of our actual conversations. I think it might be a good way to address the, the comfortable liberal audience. How, when did you last speak with him? Christmas. It's a long time. Yep. The next day, the last, begins like all the others, a conversation with someone who isn't there. We made it through, I tell Carolyn. The boats didn't flip, no one got tossed, the bad things didn't happen. That was normal for her, and I watched her test it a lot. Usually, the bad things don't happen. She had magical powers. I saw her make it rain once where it had not rained for 40 years. We're loading boats again, and I find John Weishite. I'm trying to remember that thing that you told me that you have to do when things get really bad. Oh, yes. So sometimes things don't happen very well on the river, and uh, boats slip or driftwood gets in the way and a lot of, one of the things that I've learned through the years is when things get like you're you're actually combating nature and you're not getting anywhere it's best to, to surrender prison prison Tim to Christopher will be sentenced on July 26th the prosecutors are asking for several years he and I have a lot of time to think about what the river is saying about a dangerous descent. Surrender is something a football coach would never say, but when you're out here, there's nothing wrong with surrender. It's actually a good idea. Descent by Alex Chadwick and Bill Abbott was produced for KCRW's Unfictional. Tim DeChristopher served 21 months in prison, including 22 days in isolation. He's now on probation and attending the Harvard Divinity School. While the Colorado River is home to thousands of tourists every summer, the Ganges River, which rises in the Himalayas and empties into the Bay of Bengal, is sacred to millions. Hindus believe that if you are cremated along the banks of the Ganges, or if your ashes can be brought to the Ganges, you will be granted instant salvation. Still, the Ganges is also a dumping ground for sewage and industrial waste. Nevertheless, it's still relied upon by millions along its banks for their daily needs, like washing, bathing, and cooking. Producer Phoebe Judge went to India to investigate what it would take to clean up this most holy place. I arrived in Varanasi on the overnight train from Agra. I had come with a friend who was a photographer to see one of the holiest cities in India and to try and figure out why the most holy river in the country was also one of the most polluted, the Ganges. India is a country that overwhelms. If this is true for India, it's magnified in Varanasi. In the first hour that I got there, I was pushed to the side of a small passageway to make room for a procession of men carrying a wrapped body on their shoulders on their way to the river. 
Hindus believe that the soul of a body placed in the Ganges and Varanasi will go straight to heaven. If a family has the money or time to get their loved ones to these shores, they try to do it. The whole city is moved by the power, both financially and spiritually, of this river, which runs for five miles through Varanasi. The old section of the city, which seems cramped and confusing, opens up when you get to the river. The Ganges flows wide at Varanasi, and all along are ghats, stone steps leading down to the water. It is here that you see just why the city and the Ganges is important. Hello, hello. What's your name? My name is Pinky. What are you doing? I do flower. Pinky and her friends spend their days walking up and down the length of the Ganges, selling flowers and cardboard dishes with a candle in the middle to tourists. The little boats are then released into the Ganges during the nightly religious ceremonies that happen up and down the river. Pinky is nine and a good salesman. Many people buy and flower and put in the water. You know why? From the good karma. Your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, your all family is happy. You won't buy either, are you? You won't buy flower, please. Everything happens along the banks of the river. In a span of a hundred feet on the banks of the Ganges here, I saw this. A guru giving a reading to tourists. Ten cattle drinking from the river. A woman doing laundry right next to them. A man washing his hair. A body being burned on a funeral pyre. Two puppies playing in the warm ashes of a put-out fire. A group of women eating their lunch, and kids playing cricket, and a bunch of men building a wooden boat, and the constant stream of boats already finished going up and down the river. People drink, bathe, swim in this river. The river in Varanasi is said to have a hundred times the recommended levels of toxins, and there are dozens of open sewage outfalls which flow into the river. For those who use the Ganges every day, the level of pollution is apparent. But it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to stop using this river. The river is just too holy. Yes, uh, I'm from Varanasi, from Old City. Um, my name is Vishnu Sahu. I make here chai, and I teach people how can make chai. And people coming here, I teach people. I teach people free, and and I sell here tea leaf and tea masala. And who people want, they will take. If they don't want, then no problem. On a side street in the old city is a small shop called Vishnu's Tea Emporium. The shop was on the way back to my room, and I passed Vishnu often as I made my way back and forth from the river. He was incredibly friendly, and finally one day I accepted his invitation to come in and have a cup of tea. Vishnu is 22 and says he's owned the shop for four years. Most of his customers are tourists here to see the holiest city in India. Vishnu always says that he doesn't care if people buy anything in his shop or not, and after a while talking to him, I came to believe him. He keeps a journal of all the foreigners that he meets. He showed it to me. He has all their addresses, and sometimes even pictures that they have sent him. I asked Vishnu what he thought about the Ganges and the pollution, and how it might affect his business, but he stopped me. 
No, no, he's not business because he's very, very holy water. No one can make dirty. Understand? No, explain that. No one can make dirty in the Ganga water. Ganga is so clean. Understand? Ganga is so clean. If you see that side is little dirty, but in the middle and other side is very clean. I heard this often. I would bring up pollution and people would stop me and tell me that it just wasn't true. I am very lucky I born here and I, it's my dream I died here. Not anywhere. I, like, I love Varanasi too much. Not too much, three much you can say. Prashan Sharma owns a shop nearby. It's filled with incense and little statues of the Hindu gods Shiva and Ganesh. It's not only just a water. You can just drink these things. This is a very... As you can say, this is a mother, not anything. I just imagine this, this is my mother. Every morning at 6.20, Prashan Sharma goes down to the river and bathes. In the summer, when it's warm, he goes swimming. At a time, the water is too much dirty. Uh, because I uh, born here and I sight, 12 years before, the water is color is a green, but at a time, the color is gray. Prashan says that a few years ago, when he would be swimming with his friends, they would sometimes throw out a little piece of bread, and within a minute, five to six fish would rise from the water and fight for it. Now when he does that, it takes maybe a minute or two before even one fish takes notice. This doesn't stop Prashan from bathing in the Ganges, but what he has seen has made him more aware of the harm the pollution might have. Just sometimes, just my grandmother, startingly, she drinks only Ganga water, not anything. But before seven, eight years, she don't drink this water. I totally stopped because this is not good for the stomach. The worsening level of pollution in the Ganges has been something that many have been watching closely for decades. My name is Veerabhadra Mishra. I have been professor of hydraulic engineering and I am the founder director of uh, Sankat Mochan Foundation, which is this running this campaign of Swachha Ganga Abhiyan Clean Ganges campaign. Veer Bhadra Mishra lives in the same house that he was born in on the banks of the Ganges at the Tulsi Ghat. The stone steps leading up to his house are so steep that you have to take a break as you make your way up. Once you arrive at his front door and look out, you can see one of the most beautiful views of the Ganges and all of Varanasi. He's a professor, but also a very religious man. He used to bathe in the Ganges every morning, but his knees are bad now, and he can't climb stairs, so the water is brought to him. And for the last 30 years, he's been trying to convince people who use the river as he does, that something needs to be done about the pollution. It isn't always an easy sell. If I start talking to the common people, that the Ganga is filthy, Ganga is polluted, the water is not good for any use, then they will say that, please, Mahantji, you stop this. This hurts our ears. Ganga is our mother. Ganga is uh, water is nectar. What are you saying? This is what will be the question. In one minute's time, people will beg with four little hand that please don't say such disrespectful word to Gangaji. But when I take them to a sewer outfall and show what is this coming from the city? 
this black water, then immediately they will ask, what is this? I say this whole city's night soil is flowing into the river. Oh, oh this is unbearable. The pollution in the Ganges in Varanasi is often attributed to the direct daily use of the river, the ashes and bodies that are released in it as part of the funeral processions, the laundry that's done on its shores, and the soap that's used during bathing. But Professor Mishra says that's only a tiny percent of the problem. The bigger issue is the 32 open sewer outfalls that release sewage from the city's systems into the Ganges. In 1982, he founded the Sankit Mochan Foundation and began a clean Ganges campaign, and he came up with a plan to clean the river. And uh, this question was asked to me, that, well, Dr. Mishra, you are professor and you are this, you are so much religious and committed person. What is the way out? I said that let gravity be the driving force, not electricity. If the water is coming from the town, the wastewater is coming from the town and joining the river, at the end of this pipeline, there is a pathway in Varanasi. So beneath that pathway, we can have a tunnel. So have a tunnel, watertight, and join all these point sources. The sewage of the town will go to the end of the city by gravity. The waste would then be pumped to a piece of land 10 miles downriver and released into a series of four ponds, which would over time ferment all the organic matter, taking care of all the waste. This integrated pond system was developed by scientists at the University of California, Berkeley, a group which has worked closely with Professor Mishra. In 1999, Time magazine named Professor Mishra a hero of the planet for his work on trying to clean up the Ganges. In 1997, Professor Mishra delivered his plan to the government. While it was initially well-received, nothing has happened yet. There is only one city, and it is Varanasi where the community, an NGO, has been able to give a, give a plan which is workable and we are ready to discuss at any, at any forum. Government has said that we have money. World Bank has given $1 million for Gangaji. They have committed for $4 billion. So where is the dearth of funds? What is happening, we don't understand. When I asked Professor Mishra whether he was angry about the slow pace of trying to stop the pollution, he looked at me and then away and waited for it seemed like a minute before answering. Yes, it makes us very sad and we are very, very, means I can't explain, can't express myself and what my heart feels when you put this question. Without Ganga, at least Varanasi will not exist. This culture related to water, the faith related to water, will be over. And if there are no practitioners of a culture, of a tradition, then culture and tradition don't live, don't exist in abstraction. Every evening when the sun goes down, the religious ceremonies start along the banks. These are huge productions, with men playing instruments, prayers said aloud, and chanting. 
All along the river, tourists pay boat drivers to get them up close. And while the river is dark, you can see the flashes of cameras continuously going off. And the ceremony flowers with candles in the middle floating down the river. Boatmen who haven't gotten a ride that night will sometimes walk up and down the banks, trying to secure a ride for the next morning at sunrise. It was here that I met Raoul. He told me that he was 13, but he looked younger than that. I had gotten used to people offering me a boat ride as I walked along the river. It was constant. Boat, you want a boat? I hadn't given in. But Raoul was by far the youngest boatman that I had seen, and he told me how he used the money from rowing to pay for his school fees. So I agreed to meet him at sunrise the next morning. The next morning before dawn, I met Raoul at the river. It was still dark and he looked tired. Raoul's family owns a tea shop right along the banks and he lives not far away. He rows his boat before school and after school. My school time is 11.30 to 4.30. I come, when I come back to school, I work in a boat and evening time work, morning time work. Raoul's boat is one of the smallest on the river, but still when he pulls the oars, his whole body lifts from his seat. I didn't care much about the ride. I wanted to talk to him, so I told him we might as well drift for a while. Do you think Varanasi is kind of like a holy place? Yeah, Varanasi has kind of holy place. You can see here, people come to see everything, to see the sunrise, to see the ceremonies down in evening time. It is kind of holiday, you can see, but Varanasi has a little bit dirty, you know. Raoul's been rowing on the river for a few years. He knows many of the people who work here. He kept talking to them as we floated by. Good morning. Do you think that you want to do this forever? Do you want to keep doing this? No, not ever. I want to be a doctor. Just for school working, to pay for my school and is working. Not ever. I want to be a doctor. Do you want to live in Varanasi forever? Not forever. I want to go England everywhere. What I want to be, we go everywhere. Do you think the river is pretty? Yes. Pretty good, but little dirty. Raoul believes that yes, the river is dirty, but he doesn't believe that the real problem is coming from those using it. Uh, every morning at five o'clock, we pull the camp here and they doing laundry for earn money and eat some foods. When they don't work, then how they get money? People then they work for laundries. The people they take from clothes from out of people and they give here and they clean and doing press hard and after giving back they earn some money for this river and the government say please don't wash clothes into the river and then when they don't have water how the clothes washing he's saying government say you don't wash clothes into the river it will be dirty and he's not about dirty of the shop he's dirty about toilet water very very far far away water coming in the ground in water but what you do they don't go, go uh, the government they don't stop first toilet water, like dirty water, pollution water from river of cities water from here. But they stop first for this clothes. But the man is still working because they want to earn money, eat some foods. When they don't work, how they get money? Who pay for them to eat everything? As Raoul pulled his boat to the shore and let me off, I was pretty convinced that this kid wouldn't be a boatman for the rest of his life. 
but for a while, it's the way he's going to put himself through school, and he needs it. Just like the woman doing laundry needs the river so she can feed her kids, and like the practicing Hindus need it to purify themselves every morning, and like the grieving families who travel from all corners of the country need it to place the bodies of their loved ones when they die so that their souls can go straight to heaven. The Ganges River was produced by Phoebe Judge and edited by Katie Davis for The Story, which ran until 2013 from American Public Media and WUNC in North Carolina. Phoebe is one of the founding producers of the podcast Criminal. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxai. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 1,500 outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.